Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churthus. Acai, goji berries, chia seeds, fruits like pepino, mangosteen, rambutan, quinoa, teff, fonio. What all these foods have in common, apart from being not very well known in the West, is that they've all been touted as superfoods, a term that means absolutely nothing. Another phrase you'll sometimes hear is functional foods. These are things that are claimed to promote health or prevent disease. Some superfoods might be functional in that sense, but not all functional foods are superfoods. Cacao, for example, chocolate, is hardly a superfood. But a lot of chocoholics can rattle off the benefits, from the proven contributes to normal blood flow, to the somewhat wackier improves cognitive function, or even prevents premature aging. But there is one group of people who definitely do stand to gain from superfoods and functional foods, and that's the farmers who grow them. Whatever the truth of the claims, a bigger market for some of these crops can be an opportunity for smaller-scale farmers. But there are problems, as you'll know if you heard the episode on quinoa, the South American superfood. I was prompted to look at them again by a recent issue of Choices, the Journal of the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association, which focused on functional foods. Are they a fad, it asked, or a pathway to prosperity? Both, I reckon. Now, one of the editors of that issue was Trent Blair at the Tropical Education and Research Center of the University of Florida. Before that, Dr. Blair worked on agroforestry in the Peruvian Amazon and researched maize varieties in Mexico. So I asked him, what is it that turns these little-known foods into global superstars? People traveling and seeing new things. You see a growth in, in chefs. So this whole movement in trying these new products and this interest in culturalism and so on, um, I think has started a lot of it. Um, even within these countries, so you've seen Latin America especially. Um, I, w- I lived in Peru for many years, and, and Nima's famous for us. Um, chefs that have become famous all over the world and going into areas, into native areas and bringing out products and introducing them to the world and then people go and try them and then taking them off. Um, so we see this phenomenon and boom in these products, I think, that we wouldn't have known about even a decade ago. So, so you think it's really sort of down to exploration and, and coming across new things and then because there's always a drive for sort of innovation in restaurants and chefs. Right, I think that's part of it. There's a part about some governments have been very active in NGOs and others in promoting products to bring out. So, so we have this great product and there's this interest in markets and helping um, these rural communities. And so a lot of governments have these sectors now that are promoting um, these products. I did this research in Peru on camo camo, which wasn't in there, but it's a fruit in the Amazon that was first promoted when Fujimori was president of Peru and brought to Japan and so on. So there's several factors, I think. If you look at Brazil and acai, 
there was a lot of work by the Brazilian government first to bring acai to local markets and regional markets and introduce it and then they take it out. So there's there's several factors, I think, playing into it. But there's definitely a receptive audience among consumers looking for new things. One of the things that, I mean, I know about from from having looked at quinoa in the past is that there does tend to be a kind of boom and bust cycle. Um, so you start off with very good intentions of let's let's get a market for for these farmers. And if the market develops, everybody else crowds in and and supply goes up and prices go down and and how i mean is that general or is that only for for quinoa and how do you avoid that it's not only quinoa i think we see this in almost any of these new specialty crops that come to the market and you see it in agriculture in general i mean you talk about coffee prices going up and coming down right we see that in cacao Farmers all over the world face these challenges where they're tied to the markets. And what happens is when you see these very high prices, everyone jumps in and then you get an oversupply and it goes down until you build stable long-term markets. One of the things I end as an agricultural economist and a lot of people that work in development is if we work on systems that are more diverse, so you're not just dependent on one crop. And so you have diverse production, you have various markets you can sell to. And so if one price goes up and then goes down, you have something else you can support yourself and live on. Um, because I don't, we're not going to get past these, how these markets go up and down. Talking about cacao, which I know you've worked on, chocolate, it, it's fairly recently that we've seen sort of single origin chocolates and country, you know, national chocolates, as it were. I mean, I'm in Italy. I can buy chocolate from Uganda. I can buy chocolate from Nicaragua. I can buy chocolate from Dominican Republic, you know. Um, but there's still this sort of giant bulk market. Is it, is it possible for the two to coexist? Oh, definitely. I think there's an opportunity in there's different types of markets. Um, and it and it's for different types of growers or producers that can enter the different types of markets. So what we're finding is that a lot more of these specialty markets, because they require so much more care, so much more work in post-harvest and so on, is much more beneficial to small-scale farmers who have the time to do that, who can get, a, who get the benefit from um, growing a small area and selling at those higher prices, right? To people looking for quality and willing to pay for it. So that's in cacao and many other products. And your bought commodity markets that still exist, those type of markets are much more for larger scale producers who are trying to sell on the margin, right? And so that's what we're looking at now is these changing markets, proliferation of markets, and there could be opportunities for different types of producers for the different types of markets. I mean, you see it in coffee as well. I think that was before even cacao. And you see now that buyers will go directly to coffee farmers and pay two or three times the market prices directly from a farmer. Right? But it's these specialized farmers that put in the extra effort. Do the specialized farmers have an advantage? Because, frankly, nobody else can be bothered to put in as much work as they do. Um, or is, would there be economies of scale? If I had a plantation and decided to grow some fancy coffee or chocolate or whatever and give attention to it, would I still be able to undercut the, the specialist farmers? Um. You could. I mean, there's definitely large plantations for coffee in Guatemala that sell high-quality coffee. So that's not – and they, they market their own and so on, right? So if you're – definitely there's an opportunity there. But if you're growing 
thousands and thousands of hectares of a product, it's it's not going to be specialized. And especially the attention to detail it needs, because it's also about a love of the product. So if you own your own your own property and you have your own farm, there's definitely this definitely love of the product and and interest in producing at that higher quality that you wouldn't get normally from workers in a large plantation, even if you can get higher quality. And there's this other thing about consumers wanting to purchase directly from small farmers. So it's in consumer demand for these products as well, right? So you go into a coffee shop now in several places and they'll have the farmer's name on the product, right? That'll get there. Um, you could even have it sometimes in a bar of chocolate. And that's really a great interest to a lot of the consumers, especially in the West. And even in other countries, that would happen when I was in Lima. Um, you, they have the name of this farm, so on where it came from. So I think there's also this consumer interest um, in supporting these types of small-scale growers. And how do the small-scale growers, with a, with a product like cacao and, and with coffee, there's processing before it gets to the market. I mean, you don't, we don't buy cacao beans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do they develop the expertise and, and make it worthwhile for, for Western companies to buy their product or even national larger companies? Is there a lot of development of cooperatives or training? How does that work? So there's been a lot of work in cooperatives and cooperative development can be challenging as I'm sure you and your listeners can imagine get several independent people and farmers usually are very independent minded about what they do to come together and work and to do something. But there's usually success, especially among communities with homogenous groups and indigenous communities. So one part is cooperative building. There's some very fascinating work that's been done by some very innovative businesses, exporters, right? So some being the bar companies that actually have gone in communities and set up their own associations. Right. And so they work with associations, they provide the training and they provide the infrastructure because in coffee or cacao or many other products, you have to have a really good post harvest. Right. It has to be fermented correctly. It's not going to be done right. It has to be dried to the correct amount of right and through all this processing. And so they work with the farmers and provide or collect it and, and sell it that way. And there's some very fascinating there. There's a there's a company in, in Switzerland called Chola Chola that has farmers in the Peruvian Amazon, they actually have shares in the company. And so they share the profits and they go, so they can work together all the way from the supply. Up. But I mean, it's only like 50 farmers. So you're talking about small scale things. But um, yeah. And I know this is sort of, I'm, I'm being deeply pessimistic here, but it seems to me that the opportunities for fraud are huge. I mean, I, I buy a bar of chocolate. It says whatever it says on the label, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, I have no way of knowing. Um, how, how do you police that? That's, <laughs> you get some very good questions. Um, one thing is you go to a bar of chocolate and you see the certification labels, right? So if you want organic and if it has the EU label and you can trust the EU backing it, but there's been issues because it has to be supported by these companies that validate that the farmers are doing all of the, following all the procedures. And there's been cases in Central America of these companies falsifying, but they tend to get caught. And there's cases like the research I did on Kamo Kamo, which I explained in Peru, of farmers putting water into it to make it way more, so it wasn't all pure and, and things like that, right? 
So um, usually in the end, the market catches it because you get quality, right? And and the certification labels and so on, they try to do with organizations that are trusted, right? That do it. So you go, okay, so if this is supported by WWF or something that I know and I can trust, then it has that standards behind it and they do the policing and, and the validation. So that's where we're at. But I'm, I'm not going to lie that there's many concerns about some of the fraud issues that you bring up. Let, let's talk a little about, get away from chocolate and coffee and fruits and stuff. Let's talk a little bit about blue corn. Um, uh-huh. I've, I've, I've noticed blue corn chips and things coming on the market. And sometimes you see a claim made that this is really good for you because the blue pigments are antioxidants and they're going to stop you getting cancer or whatever it might be. I wonder to what extent consumers actually care about antioxidants and to what extent they just think, hey, this is blue, it's cool, it's, it's unusual, it's different. Yeah, I think it's the blue thing. <laughs> I mean, there might be a few for antioxidants, but I think it's more of a plus to the product, right? So you're like, oh, it's blue and it has antioxidants, right? And so it's, <laughs> it's like a plus when they're buying it. So, yeah, it's more of a cool thing, trend, and it looks interesting in your dishes and so on and the whole native process of a lot of these um, history and everything that goes into that type of corn is also i think interesting to the consumers well tell tell me a bit more about the history of blue corn i mean it to me it seems to have kind of come out of nowhere <laughs> no but in mexico if you go to mexico it's the origin of of corn of maize you go in these communities traditional communities and they have brightly colored so you have red, you have green, I mean, the white and yellow that we know most of the times in our markets, but they have a bright variety. And in different communities, they might have different colors that they maintain and so on, the multicolors in what they use. But what has happened with time is with hybrid varieties that have been introduced and that are more productive, it's moved to white and, and yellow corn. But in these traditional communities, they saved a lot of their their blue corn, right? And you would go, like in Mexico, you would go out in the state of Mexico, not far from Mexico City, you go out in these communities and and they would um, have tortillas and people would go visit and they would eat these blue corn things. It's a big, important thing culturally. And what has happened with like a cultural nationalization or or putting new importance in all these things that come back from Aztec times, right, of all these different types of corn, is that there's been a great acceptance within Mexico society for these types of corn, and it's gone out and looking out for export markets. And so I think a lot started in, in restaurants in Mexico City and Guadalajara and Puebla um, demanding these, these type of products. So there's no, there's no kind of stigma attached to these being... F- older varieties that are somehow not modern? I mean, it's come full circle then. I would say it's come full circle. So let's say 20 years ago, there definitely would have been a stigma, right? So 20 years ago, every middle class or other consumer in most of Mexico would have wanted their white tortillas. Now it's become this cool thing to eat your blue tortillas, your red tortillas. It started like in very upper class quality restaurants. So I'm seeing this a lot, and I mentioned before, it's just really interesting how some chefs have been able to push the envelope and bring some of these things on. So it was these innovative, we see a lot of these innovative chefs that have gone out to the communities and buy directly from them this this corn. 
and then has started picking up on a larger scale and in middle class consumers as well. And again, you've got the problem that it becomes very popular. Can the small communities cope with the demand? Exactly. And then how do we conserve this traditional product? Because for them, it's like protected, like it's packed. For them, it's almost like their own product, right? The seeds that they saved, right? And so it's like protected resource for them. And then how do we scale that up and and bring it out? And there's been discussions, do we bring hybrid blue corn to markets? Yeah. But then there's communities will say no, and the creationists will say no, right? And then the blue corn changes a little bit by each community. And then processing that can be challenging for large agro processors, right? Because they want consistency. It's maybe it's a good problem because you see the, the renaissance of this product and these small-scale farmers earning an income off this, which they didn't before, and youth interested once again in farming these types of varieties. But it could go the same way that, for example, coffee went, and you could have the bulk, you could have people growing blue corn by the thousand hectares and people growing blue corn on their backyard gardens, and the consumer would have to be able to tell the difference, or it would be marketed differently. Yeah, we have to be marketed differently. So there's definitely a movement like in Sinola or the states in northern Mexico that they grow large-scale farms to grow hybrid blue for for middle-class markets, let's say mass markets, and then the specialty markets from the native varieties, right? Yeah. And overall, um, I mean, it's probably impossible to say given how wide the variety of crops are that are involved, but you think this is a a good development for for smaller farmers, for small-scale farmers, that they can uh, access new markets and and new products in this way? Well, I think there's some caveats, right? So we need to be careful. So if we look at the quinoa story, I think it's a story for caution, right? So what happened with quinoa, I don't know if other viewers know, but many people know is that it took off and boomed. And then the prices went so high up and there was overproduction problems. There used to have to be rotations with quinoa and they weren't rotating it because of the high markets and they led to some soil quality issues and so on. My, my argument is that, yeah, there's an opportunities, but we also have to be careful. And also the boom and bust thing that farmers don't just be dependent on this one crop. So it could be an opportunity for them. It could be opportunity for youth to be involved, but we have to be careful in how we develop it. And many of the things that I've seen is that if you develop local markets and you develop regional markets, and then once you've done that and developed good supplies and, and networks, then look at exporting in, in global markets. And I think that's something is a good example is what Brazil did with acai is first built up the local markets before going out. So there is a potential there. It doesn't have to become a global uh, superfood. It can become a... a a national or a regional superfood first. Yeah, I definitely think that's the way to start. And that's when you build up confidence in markets and see if it would become a global superfood, right? But there's definitely more opportunities in many of these countries because they're becoming middle-income countries. They've, they've grown a lot in the last few years and consumers have the ability to pay for these products in many of these urban centers and they have a nostalgia tie to these products. You see a huge growth for employee and chocolate consumption in Ecuador and Peru that wasn't there several years ago, right? This blue maize thing started with consumers in Mexico City. So, yeah, there's an opportunity in these, these local markets. 
And what's the re- what are the responsibilities for us in global markets? Do we have a responsibility or are we just free to buy what we like now and <laughs> dump it next week? I think there's also responsibility for us in our own local markets, right? So now I'm living and working in Florida and we have all these wonderful tropical fruits that we're growing that we can sell in local markets, right? And Europe has... A, great array of products, right? And you can explore in native and specialty markets. So the one thing is not only what we have in Latin America and to bring in, but what we explore what we have locally and support our own local farmers. The other thing is to be conscious. A lot of this consumer movements have made a difference. So how cacao and coffee, and I'm going back to those because they're big commodity crops that are brought into the global markets, how they're produced now has changed a lot, and that's because of consumer demand. So we see better agroforestry systems. We see them being more environmentally responsible. We've seen issues about child labor, especially in cacao, that was in Africa being brought to the forefront. I don't think the issues have been resolved, but um, it was a lot of consumer demand. So these labeling processes, looking out what you buy and see if it is marked as being sustainably sourced and just, will make, it makes a difference in where the product comes from and is how it's produced. And what's the next superfood? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, and there's products, there's a group when I used to work in the Rhode Island Forestry Center, and they have a a whole area dedicated to orphan crops, right? And so there's products across Africa, across Latin America, across Southeast Asia that haven't made it to markets yet. There's fruit. One of my favorite fruits in Peru is lucuma. I don't know if you've ever tried that. (laughs) Okay, let me let me press you on this. What's the number one fruit you've eaten that I haven't that I should eat next? <laughs> we can go through some lists. <laughs> one of my favorite fruits from the Amazon, besides lucuma, which is from an Andean fruit, there's a fruit called arasa. I don't know if you've yeah heard of this. And there's a, a fruit in Peru that's called cocona. You might have heard that one. It's also grown in, in Brazil. And there's this weather fruit that's Andean fruit that in, in Colombia is called Lulo, in Ecuador is called Naranjillo. Ah, that one I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, they could have some opportunities. But yeah, it's just so exciting. I remember we did this work in, in Belém in the state of Pará in Brazil and just seeing the variety of fruits that they have in the market that you hadn't seen other places. It, it was, it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, there could be opportunities. But, but now, are you, are you, do you imagine that, that there will ever be a supply chain that can get me those fruits fresh? Or do you think it's going to be some kind of processed product? Yeah, I think it'll be processed products. Most on Arasa can't come fresh. Lucuma maybe because it has a harder outside or like in candies or something, but most likely it'll be in, in pulp or something on that. Trent Blair with some of the fruits that are in line to be swallowed up by the insatiable market for superfoods. I'll put a link to the issue of choices that triggered this episode in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. But there's a really tricky balance to be struck between giving smallholder farmers the chance to benefit from the crops they've developed and taken care of, while also making sure that increased demand doesn't kill the golden goose. 
And what about the balance between traveling to interesting places and savoring those foods and fruits in situ versus staying where you are and having them come to you? Is one better than the other? How about Trent's other point, that there are probably local foods and fruits that are ripe for rediscovery? I'd really like to hear what you think. Drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or find me on Twitter at eatpodcast or Instagram at eatthispodcast. My thanks to all the people who support the podcast with a donation. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Jervis, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.